Ortho Carolina understands pain is different for everyone, whether you suffered an injury on the field or everyday life. The orthopedic specialists at Ortho Carolina want to help you get pain free, all in one place. Same day appointments available, no referral needed, high quality and low cost MRIs with five convenient area locations, and orthopedic urgent care in Winston Salem and Kernersville. Ortho Carolina, you improved. OrthoCarolina.com. Again, that's OrthoCarolina. This is Twin City Talks, powered by Ortho Carolina. Here's your host, Paul Garber. In early August, Julia Sampson was gunned down in the parking lot of a restaurant at Haynes Mall in a shooting that took place in the broad daylight of a Tuesday afternoon. Sampson was a father, a husband, a barber who contributed to his community. Added to that was a racial element. The victim is black, the man charged in his death is white. Swift calls for racial justice erupted on social media. Police and local politicians asked for patience while the case is investigated. In a press conference in the Slings aftermath, Police Chief Katrina Thompson said both parties used racial epithets in the heat of an argument that preceded the shooting. But she said the killing did not appear to be racially motivated, and police were not at that point pursuing the case as a hate crime. Adding heat to the conversation was that Sampson's death came while a national debate was raging about whether gun violence could be tied to political rhetoric after a gunman killed more than 20 people in El Paso, Texas. Police say the man charged told them he targeted Mexicans. My guest today is Cami Chavis. She's the director of the criminal justice program at Wake Forest School of Law. She's an expert on hate crimes, so we're glad to have her here to help us understand how the courts view cases where victims may be targeted for their race, ethnicity, religion, or gender or sexual minority status. We begin with her perspective on the slaying of Julius Sampson. Just because we see a difference in race, we're not going to say necessarily that a hate crime has occurred. Every time um, a black person kills a white person, it's not a hate crime. Every time a white person kills a black person, um, it's not necessarily a hate crime. So you'd have to look very carefully at the facts of the case. What was happening during that time? At least if, if I were um, a, a prosecutor, you know, thinking about uh, this case, there would be things that I'd want to know uh, before I brought this in, or asked for this enhanced uh, penalty. Um, and let's thinking about under the federal law, uh, for for example, were racial slurs used during that? Did the uh, uh, the shooter? use a, a racial slur at the time. I think the problem is, and this is not just um, a local problem, this is a national problem, that our local police departments, our local agencies uh, don't often have the training to uh, recognize uh, when they're, when you might be dealing with a hate crime and then it's not flagged as such uh, and then it's not reported. So the federal government has um, in the past has given some training on well here's how you send and collect this data but not necessarily this is how you um, investigate or prosecute uh, a crime and my understanding is that um, there are some current efforts to do that to to train localities um, on this but it's troublesome when you see a case that has some aspects uh, that make it look like a bias-motivated crime, and as the public, we just have to kind of sit back and wait and let the investigation take its course. Is it Does it complicate matters when we've heard from the police chief that actually both sides in that argument apparently used a racial epithet? 
just the fact of the single fact of using um, an epithet may not be enough for the government to meet its burden. Um, you want to know what other evidence the, the prosecutor had. Certainly what we heard from the response was that people are very, very concerned about hate crimes because that was a huge concern from the very beginning of this case that the racial aspect of it be addressed. Yes, and I think, um, and again, uh, just generally, I think it's really, it's important to understand when you have a hate crime, because if we don't know, if we don't know who's committing them, where they're occurring, you can't address them. You can't have an intervention uh, to address a problem if you can't get to the the root of the problem. So that's why, um, again, in my own opinion, I think it's very it's it's really important to flag the cases um, that that look like there might be a bias um, that they might be bias motivated crimes. Uh, really important to flag those. Really important to understand uh, more about those cases, like whether or not it actually leads to a prosecution under uh, a hate crime statute or a conviction under a hate crime statute is is really a separate thought. But we certainly should be flagging these, and my hope is that more jurisdictions will report them to the FBI. Uh, we're in a, an age of data, an age of data and transparency, and it's concerning not to have the data or to look at the federal uh, at the FBI's uh, data and to know how how many holes are in it, how how skewed it is, because you have um, something like eighty seven percent of the jurisdictions that did report to the FBI, eighty seven percent of those agencies reported zero hate crimes. A lot of uh, Latinos uh, in in our country are Latino immigrants uh, are discouraged from interacting with law enforcement at all. And so how many things are happening to them on a daily basis that are going unseen? We know this with respect to sexual assaults and domestic abuse, and why wouldn't it happen with, with uh, hate crimes as well? Uh, Heather Hare, uh, who was the woman who was killed in Charlottesville, that was prosecuted as a hate crime and yet her death does not show up in the statistics. So if we're missing that very high profile case, we know we're missing others. Imagine um, the number of cases that do not garner that attention, that are not being counted and collected. How do you address a community who has you know, legitimate concerns about the racial aspect while not pressing too hard on a case that you might not be able to prove? As a prosecutor, you are bound by uh, ethical rules. You can't bring a case or charges um, that you don't think um, you have uh, the evidence to substantiate. And when you look at something like a thousand hate crimes reported in Texas and fewer than 10 of those cases were successfully prosecuted. It's, uh, we see it's a very difficult burden. So you may understand uh, uh, why uh, a prosecutor might be reluctant to bring those charges. But at the same time, um, what that means is that we just have to have um, stronger and more thorough investigations. And so that you can be sure, if you can say, this is all of the evidence that I have, and I'm looking at this evidence, and it either it is or it isn't enough. But again, we have to have um, 
uh, local uh, police departments uh, need to be trained to, to recognize them, to, to flag them. What questions do you, you know, are you asking uh, witnesses? It, is it relevant? Again, there was a, I think it was a pro Publica report um, that they, they went through these like 2000 um, police reports and we're in a, in a jurisdiction that said they had no hate crimes and they found at least 15 crimes where there was some indication that it might have been bias motivated and so in this day and age and, um, and how important data and transparency is and uh, we you, we really need to know what we're dealing with so that we can create policy interventions to um, to address them we had some high-profile crimes over the summer particularly the shooting in El Paso where the suspect was arrested uh, allegedly told police that he was targeting Mexicans that really ramped things up and so I just wanted to ask you, what did you make of what happened this summer with all the talk and then a couple of very high profile mass shootings? It's interesting because, you know, this summer we have um, El Paso. In a past year, we could name another city. Uh, we could name Dillon Roof in Charleston, South Carolina. So, and, and the list goes on. What's concerning uh, for me and many others who are looking at hate crimes and, and the trends is that even though we know that we're seeing an increase in the amount of reported hate crimes, there's still not as much that that's being done on a federal or local level in terms of the training uh, to investigate these crimes and also the detection uh, to prevent these crimes. So we start by thinking about, well, what is a hate crime? A hate crime, uh, or sometimes you'll hear people uh, refer to them as uh, bias-motivated crimes. These are crimes that maybe like any other crime, uh, a robbery, an assault, vandalism, but there's a statute, either a state statute or a federal statute, uh, that will give an enhanced penalty, will allow for an enhanced penalty if government can prove that the crime was motivated by bias. And those categories of bias are defined in the statute. So, for example, many states list race or ethnicity, religion as, as one of the, the protected categories. Uh, our federal government now also has race, gender, religion, sexual orientation, and gen gender identity, disability. So it covers a broad uh, array of what we call protected categories. So uh, a hate crime, if you can prove that someone has engaged in a crime because of another person's membership in one of those categories, then you, you can have an enhanced penalty. The rub there is that it can be very difficult to prove someone's motivation. If we look back at some of the, the fact patterns from some cases where this bias has been proved, we've, we can look at was a racial slur used um, at the time uh, of the crime? Did, a, did the person use a racial slur? Um, we can even go back and look at, well, does this person, if we're looking at their social media and they belong to certain groups that espouse a certain behavior, do they have um, uh, marks or uh, tattoos or things that would identify them as belonging to one of those groups? And usually any of those one thing standing alone is uh, not going to uh, prove that burden. Uh, but when we take a look collectively at the evidence, that's how we can, as, as a prosecutor, that's how you might go about proving 
the bias, but it can be very, very difficult. And so, um, when people say, "Oh, well, we, you know, we don't see a lot of a lot of prosecutions or convictions," that's why. What makes it hard to prosecute? Anytime you have a crime, the burden is on the government, right? The government has to prove every element of that crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And so now, when you're adding uh, a bias motivation, the government has to prove that. We can't speculate that because one person was white and one person was Latino, um, that the reason they killed that person was because of their race, or that one person um, was uh, transgender and one person was not. That 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 was the reason the government would have to show um, that this crime was linked in some way to the victim's protected status. If I'm committing a crime and I'm constantly saying, you know, calling someone a racial slur, that is often used as, as an indication. What's interesting in some of these cases that we've seen recently, the suspects, uh, when they're detained, they, they tell you, they say, they, they give these statements to the police that they were going to go in to kill Mexicans. Uh, Dylan Roof absolutely was very clear about he wanted to kill African Americans and why he wanted to do so. So those types of things facilitate the prosecution, but we don't always have them. And so when we're looking at um, our statistics nationally, when you think about the number of reported cases versus the number that are actually prosecuted and then move through uh, from being charged to to convicted, um, those numbers dwindle because it becomes sometimes difficult to prove. What is the value of adding that uh, hate crime designation on there? when we know that somebody going into a situation like that knows they're either going to die on site or they're going to jail for the rest of their lives if they get convicted or they're going to be executed. One thing that I have written a bit about is the symbolism that is attached to hate crimes because as you mentioned, for example, in Texas or in North Carolina, you know, two states that have the death penalty, which is the ultimate criminal punishment the state can impose, is, is death. Uh, and you have a person who, you know, takes an assault rifle and goes in and, and kills a number of people. All those aggravating circumstances, um, that is uh, a textbook uh, case for, you know, a capital punishment in, in that case. The symbolism is because when you think about our nation and the values that we have uh, in our nation, free democratic society, that everyone should should be able to live, walk uh, without the fear that they're going to be harmed because of their membership in some protected class, because of their race, because of their religion. And the, the enhanced penalty is really um, a way to demonstrate that. We want to deter this type uh, of activity. Of, of course, we want to deter any uh, homicide, any anytime someone uh, is killed. But uh, when you have hate crimes, the enhanced penalty is because that crime not only is the victim, but uh, everyone in that targeted community is harmed. And we'll take, for example, uh, the case, the recent case of, of El Paso. And so this person wanted to... Uh, target Mexicans, and how does that make you know the in, entire 
uh, Mexican community in El Paso feel. They feel targeted. Um, and so it's when we're thinking about hate crimes, when we're thinking about the symbolism, it's, it's not just that uh, this crime has harmed uh, one individual uh, or the impacted individuals. It's that the impact of those crimes reverberates throughout that entire uh, targeted group. I think it's so important that we understand hate crimes, that we study and are able to detect and prevent them because uh, you may often have the cases that we've seen, we have lone wolves, but people don't always uh, act that way and they they can be copycats and and others. So um, it really is a way of terrorizing an entire community. And when we think back about the origins of some of these, uh, of, of, of our federal hate crimes uh, laws, it was exactly that type of domestic terrorism that the Ku Klux Klan was the incredible terror that that group that organized to uh, terrorize African American communities in the South. And these laws grow out of that. So when we're thinking about the rise of, of hate uh, in America, it is baked into the fabric uh, of our society, unfortunately. Um, we would not have these laws had we not had you know, that, that type of terrorism. So what do you think of North Carolina's hate crime law? In my opinion, our hate crime law is, is certainly not as expansive as the federal government's law. Our hate crime statute in North Carolina does not cover uh, sexual orientation, for example. But another uh, weakness, one might say, of the law is that North Carolina lacks a hate crime law that applies to felonies. So when you think back to some of the higher profile cases that have happened in North Carolina, the case, uh, unfortunately, uh, a few years ago where uh, several Muslims were killed in Chapel Hill, the state could not prosecute that as a hate crimes law because jurisdictionally the statute didn't provide for it. So when you compare it to other hate crime laws across the country or even the federal law, you're not going to get as many prosecutions under it just because it doesn't cover as much uh, activity. A lot of times if uh, if there uh, was a crime that could not be prosecuted in North Carolina because of its jurisdictional limits, um, then it may uh, be able to be prosecuted at the federal level. Of course, we know um, at the federal level, again, since 2009, when the new federal law uh, was enacted, there have uh, been maybe an estimated 200 uh charged, 200 defendants charged um, in uh, hate crimes, and we've seen um, only uh, something like 64 um, convictions. I'm surprised, given the reputation that the federal government has for its conviction rates in courts, that that number would be that low. So it's interesting, yes and no, right? Because, um, for example, um, the FBI reported 7,100 hate crimes uh, back in 2017. And this includes an, an uptick, right? We've been, uh, this I think we're going into our third straight year where we're going to see an increase. So thousands of cases, uh, hate crimes cases reported to the FBI every year. And yet you only have, again, these 200 defendants, 88 indictments, 
and 64 convictions through 2018. That, that seems like a really small number, but again, the statistics are actually even more stark because we know that there's a lot of underreporting um, that goes on. States are not required to report their hate crimes. This is, this is voluntary, it's not required. You have a lot of jurisdictions. Las Vegas, for example, in 2017 reported zero hate crimes. And so this is a, a major city and they've reported zero hate crimes. We know that- um, You're skeptical of that. Uh, very, very skeptical of, of that. And in fact, there have been um, you know some independent studies of um, you know, jurisdictions that say they have no hate crimes and then a researcher will go through the police reports and they'll find an indication uh, of, some, of some bias motivated crime. So we're missing a lot. So when you think about the number that's actually reported and then the number that's missing, it really makes the, the actual number of convictions appear to be very small, minuscule even. Um, but again, that goes back to um, the idea that these cases, they can be difficult to prosecute. And when you're talking about the federal government, the federal government, who's prosecuting um, these cases, the office of, uh, we're talking about the Department of Justice, maybe in conjunction with a, um, a U.S. attorney's office around the country, but they're pretty limited resources when you're thinking about the, the sheer number and volume uh, of cases. So it's really, this makes it really important for uh, the, for local police departments and uh, local uh, district attorneys to pay attention to these cases and where there's a statute to, to um, use that statute if it's appropriate. Is there anything we can do to decrease the number of, of hate crimes? When I think about uh, what we can do to stem uh, hate crimes that, again, we're seeing a surge uh, in, in crimes for the third year, is uh, it just to me goes back to there's a deterrence rationale. Uh, we, I tell my students all the time, you know, when we go back to the purposes of punishment, why are you punishing someone? So um, enhanced penalties is one way to do that, but it's not the only way. We really need to have, again, more education, and we need to make sure that our local police departments and law enforcement agencies are equipped to identify these crimes, to identify patterns uh, in these uh, crimes, to identify if there are groups of people who are uh, committing these crimes, and we need to uh, have adequate interventions in those, in those cases. You've been listening to Twin City Talks, powered by Ortho Carolina. For links to all episodes, our blog, and more, visit TwinCityTalks.com.